They were a seemingly happy couple with a perfect life, but one phone call seemed to change everything. When their beloved husband, brother, and son goes missing, an entire community searches for him. But when he's finally found, they instead begin searching for clues. Was this a tragic case of an unanswered cry for help? Or was their missing loved one the victim of a game among power players for which he paid the ultimate price? This week's episode is Ray Rivera, Part 1. In the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Had a nightmare the other night that I feel is directly related to this case. Oh, really? Was it a a height? It was related? a height thing. That's actually a recurring nightmare I have. I have several recurring nightmares where the theme is consistent, but the details surrounding it will change. Hmm. And one of them is I'm never watching it from below, but I'm in the room of a tall building or an apartment complex or something or on a balcony. And I either, it's either a animal or a small child that falls off a ledge. (gasps) So I see them fall from the perspective of they just fall and drop. I don't see them like falling, Mm -hmm. but it's like, so that was, you can't save them. No, no. And this last one was, a very upsetting to the point where I woke up and was having a semi panic attack because it was very graphic. But that is one of my fears is falling from high places or mm-hmm. seeing people fall from high places. The other day, again, this is probably because I've now read 8 million articles on this subject and watched mm-hmm. a, the Unsolved Mysteries doc. But I was driving down the highway And every time I would go under an overpass, I was like, there was a guy like standing, he was probably just standing there walking across an overpass. But I was like, what if he just jumped right now Mm -hmm. and he landed on my car or something, you know, or he lands in the street and then I accidentally run over him. That's uh, that's what generalized anxiety disorder does to you guys. <laughs> Where you can't you can't just watch a person walk across no, the bridge. No, no, no. You catastrophize everything and think the worst. But yeah, so um. This has been this has been a doozy. Yeah, I've been like you said obsessively. I made a chart in my living room and is it Paris true came detective in and like, style. Yeah, he came in and was like, "What have you been working on?" And I was like, "I got my theories chart." It's <laughs> like, okay, there's a lot of theories. This is this is one that I I haven't gone down a rabbit hole this deep in a while. Yes, I was like digging up filings and looking at like business old business documents, and I'm like, "We're in deep, man." Yeah, we're super deep. deep. This um, So we're talking about the case of Ray Rivera. It's the first episode on the new reboot of Unsolved Mysteries. And in my opinion, I've watched all of them. I think it's the most interesting. I think a lot of people feel that way. And my lord, the internet, specifically Reddit, has done their homework. Yes, and I found, you know, the aggregated Google Docs where everyone's putting in their ideas mm-hmm. and theories. And it's like crowdsourcing and... 
I think this is going to be one of the uh, cases where the internet solves it. I think it could definitely help. Someone out there, if not multiple people, knows something. And Mm -hmm. hopefully someone comes forward. But I'll tell you what. Redditors need to join together and just form some sort of cold case network. Like a squad. I mean, (laughs) I told Tommy, I go... People on Reddit have a ton of time on their hands. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's great. He he loves Reddit so much. <laughs> I do too. It's great. It's great. I mean, I've referenced, uh, I think, seven different sites where, I mean, Detail Guru, if you're listening, you're a legend. Like, <laughs> I don't know, guy <laughs> or girl, what, but they um, they are extensive in their research as well as a few others. So thank you guys for helping us with our research. Definitely. Yeah, well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Ray Omar Rivera was born June 10th, 1973 in Madrid, Spain, where his father, Angel, was stationed as an Air Force officer. His mother, Maria, had previously given birth to a son, Angel Jr., making Ray their second son. Ray was described as outgoing, intelligent, and prolific. When his sister, Elena, learned to play piano... Ray learned simply by watching her and playing by ear. In an interview with Makita Brotman, author of the book An Unexplained Death, The True Story of a Body at the Belvedere, Ray's mother described him as determined, saying, When Ray wanted to do something, he went right ahead and did it. He was sensitive and thoughtful and excelled at sports. Definitely one of those people everybody had something nice to say about and also just was impressive. He's just an impressive person. All around nice guy by all accounts. I didn't read anything negative that anyone said about him. Maybe the only thing is that uh, he wasn't great with money. And if that's the worst thing someone has to say about you, I think you're doing okay. I think so. In 1987, the Rivera family moved to Orlando, Florida, later settling down in the suburban city of Winter Park. Ray and his siblings attended Winter Park High School. It was here Ray first discovered his talents in the sport of water polo, where he played on his high school's newly formed team, leading them to a victory as state champions. Jack Horton, Ray's coach at the time, told the Orlando Sentinel, Ray was pretty much the star of the team. He was one of the very rare athletes that's really, really good and can explain to you how they did what they did. Horton went on to describe Ray as popular and grounded, saying, Everybody liked Ray. Ray touched so many lives in a positive way that it's a testament to what kind of person he was. Also on the team was Porter Stansbury, a well-rounded, nice young man that would become Ray's longtime best friend and eventual boss. They were very close. They went to probably double dated to prom together. They did, yeah. And on the Unsolved Mysteries episode, there's tons of pictures of them together. They met when they were 15 and were friends up until... He was 32 when he when he passed. And Ray was super close to his coach to the point where when his coach got married, Ray was a groomsman, which is awesome. But I mean, that's rarely do you have that type of relationship with a teacher. And even after he moved away from Winter Park, when he was an adult, when he would go back and visit family because they still lived in Orlando, he would stop by and mentor and coach the team And all the kids just really looked up to him. So, yeah, he was just an all-around really good guy. Also, water polo? Holy shit, that is a hard sport. (laughs) It's so hard. It's all the hard parts of a team sport and also in water. I remember when I went to summer camp 
and they would make you tread water for two minutes to see if you could get your little card to be able to swim in the pool. Mm -hmm. That was hard. It's an eternity, two minutes. (laughs) Can you imagine if you're just having to tread water for the duration of an entire water polo game and then you dive down? Do they play on the bottom of the pool? It's a wild sport. I mean, it's all over. Yeah, it's what I always just faked like I had a cramp whenever it was like beach volleyball or water (laughs) volleyball time. I was just like, oh, my peanut butter jelly. It's too hard. It's very hard. Anything in the sand or water, just that resistance that you feel Mm -hmm. is, is very hard. Upon graduating, Ray attended the University of the Pacific at Stockton, where he majored in English and continued to play water polo. After showing what he could do in college, he was then selected to attend the U.S. Water Polo Association summer event, where he could be considered for an Olympic team. His big break came when he was asked to be on the water polo team for the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. He trained with the team right up until the event, but a blow-up between Ray and the coach ended with Ray being cut from the team just two weeks before the Games, according to Brotman's book. She kind of called it like that missed chance that haunts you. Yeah. Man. Could have been a contender. That's, you, well, I don't want to say you only get one shot at the Olympics because there are people that compete in multiple Olympics, but usually you get one shot at the Olympics. Yeah, especially if it's something you're trying to break into. That was, like, Mm going to be your big break, and it's four more years of, yeah, or eight more years. Or it's a sport where your age plays a part in it. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it does so much in water polo, but I know for gymnasts, nowadays, you you usually have one Olympics in you before Mm -hmm. you age out of the sport, which is crazy, that you're, you're peaking at 15, 16 in the age of, in the sport of gymnastics. I love gymnastics. Oh, yeah. So much. The Summer Olympics, I love them so much. I love swimming. I love diving. Yes. I love gymnastics. I like beach volleyball. Oh, my God. When Michael Phelps, I was glued to my TV (laughs) every time he was on. He was so incredible. I just appreciate athleticism. I do, too. I've been watching uh, The Last Dance, which is about basketball and Michael Jordan and stuff. Oh, yeah. I am not athletic, and I love watching sports, and I love watching about documentaries about sports I but heard i love that's really good i heard that's oh, a really good one i need to watch it i've openly wept several oh times. yeah yeah he, that'll <laughs> it'll get you it'll get you in 2000 ray met allison jones a tall former volleyball player who worked as a controller for a company who sold hair products to salons the two described one another as soulmates and moved in together in los angeles in 2002 by 2004 they were engaged The two made their home in L.A., where Ray pursued his dream of becoming a screenwriter. Meanwhile, his best friend Porter was doing extremely well for himself in Baltimore, Maryland. In 1999, Porter founded the multi-million dollar company Stansberry & Associates, a private firm that offers financial research and investment advice to paid subscribers, according to Esquire. Well aware of Ray's talents as a writer, Porter had been trying to recruit his friend to come work for his firm for years as a writer for The Rebound Report, a company's stock tip newsletter that outlined badly performing stocks poised for a comeback. When Ray's screenwriting opportunities in the City of Angels seemed to stall, he decided to take his longtime friend up on his offer in order to save money for he and Allison's wedding and be able to buy her a proper ring. 
Well, and Ray said, you know, I don't have any financial knowledge. And the secret as a former investment advisor of these newsletters is you don't need any investment knowledge to write them, that they're frequently based on nothing. <laughs> so it's just you Google, this is what I think might be good and yeah. just put it in a newsletter? Yeah, one of the exceptions to giving investment advice and being having to be licensed is this like newsletter exemption that you can sell newsletters so long as they are widely distributed and disseminated just because like the First Amendment that the government can't tell you what you can and can't say or require you to be licensed in order to say something. So if you're giving one on one investment advice, you have to be licensed. But if you're writing a newsletter, Anybody can do that and they don't have to have any kind of special training. And Porter even says repeatedly, like he's been interviewed on podcasts and he now has his own like financial news show. When people ask him, like, what's your theory? And he's like, you hire people for character. You don't have to hire them for knowledge. And Hmm. so his thing was like, he Ray is a good writer and he's a good person. He don't have to know anything about stocks. Well, the problem is then you have a person who's an English major and a screenwriter being like, sounds like Krispy Kreme's going to do well. <laughs> You're like, based on what? They're like, I like donuts. Right. That's <laughs> There's not seems, really a thing. That's crazy that that's legal. Yeah. So then the, the caveat is you can't commit fraud. That's pretty much the only caveat. And a lot of these can't even do that. But aren't you committing fraud by falsely saying, I think this is a really good tip. Everyone should buy in this, even though I have... Nothing to back that up. If you say a person told me that this is a good tip and that's a lie, then you've committed fraud. If you say, I feel in my heart that this is due for a comeback, it's your opinion and they're not. And you could say, I looked at the chart of the stock and based on the chart and my interpretation, it's going to come back in six weeks. Well, that doesn't mean that you said, I heard an insider tip from the company. It's going to come back in six weeks. It's just my interpretation. And so it's protected writing under the First Amendment. That makes sense. And I'm assuming the people reading these newsletters assume that the person giving this advice is probably not a screenwriter from L.A., but rather someone in the investment world. Correct. You usually see on the websites, it's very, uh, it's a lot of like puffery of the staff. And it would say like, we have, you know, a combined 50 years of investment knowledge. And it's like, well, one guy's been doing it for 48 years and everyone else has been doing it for six months, you know? So they, there's a lot of, uh, fake cachet yeah. where it looks like, oh, or you have a very fancy name like Stensbury and Associates mm-hmm. or something like that. And then you're, as a consumer, usually you get these as like spam emails where it's like, you'll never believe that hot stuff that's going to go off next week. Click here and pay $50 for our report. And that's how they kind of get you. Wow. That is it's like a scam. It's like the original clickbait. Yeah, for sure. Initially, Ray moved to Baltimore by himself, with he and Allison assuming this would be a temporary position. He took up residence at the then Peabody Court Hotel, located in Mount Vernon, and began working as a writer and videographer for Stansbury and Associates. Three months later, Allison joined her fiancé, after the two realized this move would be more permanent than they originally thought. To save money, Ray and Allison moved in with Porter for a while. However, quarters quickly became cramped, and Ray and Allison decided to move in with her aunt in Ellicott City. Have you ever been to Baltimore? Yeah, my uh, cousin used to go to college there, and it's quite a lovely place. I went in the summertime. It was like maybe late August and walked around the harbor. It was very oh, delightful. Nice. All of my knowledge of Baltimore comes from the wire. Hell yeah. So, <laughs> so nice. uh, you know, 
how it's depicted there, but I'm sure that there are many lovely areas of yes, Baltimore mine that was, just didn't make it into that series. This was more the touristy. I went to like a fun candy shop. Like, oh, that's fun. Yeah, it was not uh, gritty. I was thinking about candy shops the other day back when we could all go to candy shops. Man, where you just put them in the... Remember when me and you and Scriven went before we recorded our Winchester episode? Yes. And got bags of candy at the like, candy by the pound and we were all so embarrassed when they weighed how much candy. <laughs> that was the exact... <laughs> Um, store I was thinking about. Man, what's in it called? Gummies. It's sugar. sugar rush. It's oh, it's sugar. It's sugar. It's sugar. It yeah, because we took Ella there, um, in the before time, which is what I call mm-hmm. before COVID. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was a an actual kid in a candy shop, but Tommy and I were the real also. kids in the candy shop. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love candy so much. I have some gummy bears in the freezer. I'm gonna oh, eat after this. Ooh, the freezer. Oh, I like to keep them cold. That's smart. Mm -hmm. Gummy bears have gelatin, which is a real bummer. Oh, you can't have that. I got to find vegan gummy bears. These are Haribo. OG Haribos. Oh, I call them Haribo, but uh, those are the best. My brother is obsessed with them. And for Christmas this last year, my mom got him a giant five-pound bag. Damn, that was a good mom. And he just took it on the airplane. I was like, imagine sitting next to someone <laughs> carry on bag. that has, yeah, it's your carry on, has a five pound bag of gummy bears just in their lap, <laughs> just eating them one by one. You know what? It's the guy I want to be friends with. Mm, he's a great guy. I, you, you know each other. You yeah, are yeah, friends. Yeah. yeah, he's a good one. He'd share his gummies with me. He would. Absolutely. Definitely. Ray and Porter continued to hang out regularly, usually without Allison. The two would frequent fancy bars and restaurants, a lifestyle to which Porter was no stranger. One establishment the two men particularly enjoyed was the Owl Bar, located in the famous Belvedere Hotel. Brotman also said that uh, Ray and Allison kind of didn't politically fit in with Porter and his friends, that they were more conservative libertarian, while Allison and Ray kind of leaned more left. So it was like an interesting California people coming with these East Coast rich kind of conservative mm-hmm. kind of trying to fit in yeah porter is um currently he's known for being very right-winged and has yeah has some controversial youtube videos out there and yeah. uh especially during obama's administration where i believe he claimed the world was ending well whoops. some other a little stuff. early on that one <laughs> yeah so far it hasn't In December of 2004, Ray and Allison purchased their own home in Northwood, a diverse middle-class neighborhood located in Baltimore, for $280,000. Ray and Allison were excited to be homeowners, making mortgage payments that cost less than their rent in L.A. However, Ray was unhappy at his job. He felt like he was failing the firm's clients because the stocks he was suggesting to buy were not proving to be profitable. Allison later recalled that the job was not a good fit for him, and that Ray was not a 9-to-5 type of guy. I feel like Ray also had a soul and felt kind of guilty about making stuff up. Yeah, definitely. And if you're a creative and you're a screenwriter and that's your passion, you're not going to have passion for a job like this, which is what Allison said. She's like, he just didn't care. Yeah, it's hard to find your give a shit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes. In the summer of 2005, Ray decided he'd had enough and left his job at Stansbury & Associates, but continued producing videos for Agora Inc., Stanbury's umbrella company. He also decided to start a video production company of his own, and took out a $15,000 cash advance from Allison's credit card. 
he decided to call his new company Seba Video Production, a name which Makita Brotman, author of the book An Unexplained Death, The True Story of a Body at the Belvedere, believes is worth noting. Brotman writes, The Seba tree is a tree with spiritual meaning. It's believed that the souls of the dead ascend to the top of the tree to go to heaven. There's also some connection between all three worlds, underworld, earth, and heaven. Was this ethereal name possible foreshadowing of what was to come? Or had he simply named his company that after the official tree of Puerto Rico, a place that had significance to Ray and Allison? With new and exciting opportunities looming, Ray and Allison decided to add even more happiness to their life on November 5, 2005, when the two celebrated an intimate, fairy tale like wedding in Isabella, Puerto Rico. Video footage on the Unsolved Mysteries episode, Mystery on the Rooftop, shows the happy couple surrounded by family and friends, including Porter Stansberry, who dramatically arrived via his private helicopter. I feel like there's two kinds of people in the world, the kind that marry their best friend and soulmate in Puerto Rico and the kind that show up in a fucking private helicopter like, hey, guys, I made it. Yeah. And I just have so many questions. Where did he land? On the beach? Was there a helicopter pad nearby and then he had to take a car to the ceremony? We got to ask Makita. She's the one that taught me that. (laughs) It looked like a beautiful ceremony, though. It did. And... You know, this happened, they got married six months before he disappeared. Mm-hmm. So they were still in that newlywed stage. In the videos, they just look, they're both glowing. They look so happy. Mm-hmm. Beaming at each other. Yes, yes. By all accounts, Ray was in a happy time of his life. He was starting his own company, had become the assistant coach for the men's water polo team at Johns Hopkins, and started writing a new screenplay, Midnight Polo the story of a young female water polo player that makes it to the Olympics. Most importantly, he and Allison were excited to start a family of their own. Everything's coming together. Mm-hmm. Initially, Ray and Allison had decided to give Baltimore two years. Now that time was up, and the couple was ready to get back to their lives in Los Angeles. In the spring of 2006, they put their house on the market and made plans to move back. Ray had also recently finished his screenplay and was eager to shop it around. It was around this time that Allison claims Ray's behavior began to change. Normally a carefree and laid-back guy, Ray started to act nervous, edgy, and irritated. He became very clingy, not wanting Allison to go anywhere by herself. According to Brotman's book, he even accompanied Allison to her track workouts, where he would sit on the bleachers while she would run. One such day, he was waiting in the car while it rained. When he saw a man enter the track and walk towards Allison, Ray became panicked and leapt out of the car, running towards his wife. The man left without incident, but Allison said the whole thing left her feeling confused and unnerved. Yeah, he didn't seem like a jealous type or overprotective. I mean, he seems like a good husband, but it wasn't like he he was ever like that before. Of, no. You can't go work out by yourself because she was a, her job was traveling. That's why she was able to move from L.A. to Baltimore, because she took a job as a basically a traveling controller. Like, so she would mm-hmm. be able to go to multiple locations and didn't really need to be based anywhere. So I'm like for a person who's married to someone who travels all the time, like that would be untenable for you. Yeah. On, long term. Yeah. Allison said they were close and would do things together, but they had gone to L.A. to kind of secure things about moving back. And when they got back to Baltimore is when his behavior totally changed. And Hmm. he didn't want her going anywhere by herself. She would say, Ray, I'm fine. I'm just going to go work out. And he just wouldn't have anything of it. 
Mm. On May 14th, two days before Ray would disappear, Allison overheard her husband leave a voicemail for Porter Stansberry. In it, he said, Hey man, give me a call back. I finally have it all figured out. Porter later told the family he had no idea what Ray was talking about. Allison also didn't know. Yeah, they basically were just leaving a church service, mm-hmm. and he pulls out his phone and makes a call. Yeah. It just popped, something popped into his head. The following day, the bizarre incidents continued, when Ray and Allison's home alarm began blaring at 1 a.m., something that had never happened before. Ray leapt out of bed, grabbed a baseball bat, and was prepared to defend his house and wife. Allison told Baltimore Crime that her husband's terrified reaction literally made me sick. He had a look in his eyes I'd never seen before. Ray was scared. He's a big Latin guy, and he's macho. It just wasn't him. Responding officers chalked it up to a squirrel. But Allison wasn't convinced, as the screens on the window have to be pushed fairly hard to trigger the alarm, a move a small squirrel couldn't do. When the alarm went off again the very next night around the same time, Allison feared it wasn't a coincidence. That's what you want. The cops to be like, oh, a snake did it. Bye. <laughs> it's a squirrel. You're like, mm. well, if a squirrel can open this window and push the screen in to trigger my alarm, we have this problem's bigger than I thought. Because we right. have a man-sized squirrel terrorizing <laughs> the neighborhood of Northwood. There, or either that or it's a bunch of squirrels have stacked on top of each other to make a man-sized squirrel. Oh, gosh. Squirrel. It's, would you rather fight one giant squirrel or a bunch <laughs> of or 500 tiny squirrels? That's right. I would always rather fight one giant thing than a bunch of tiny things. You think so? Yeah, because I feel like one-on-one, you have a better chance. Plus, you can kind of run and evade. But if you got a True. bunch of things, I don't know. I just picture them taking you down. <laughs> Overwhelmed. I think we've talked about this before. These are things I think about a lot. <laughs> You're like, what if I did run into a man-sized squirrel? <laughs> First of all, how cute. First, yes, adorable. <laughs> Look, imagine those little paws. Just like, imagine a man-sized squirrel eating a big-ass acorn. Just Like, where'd you get a nut that big? (laughs) A few hours after Ray and Allison were woken by the alarm, Ray would make his wife breakfast for the very last time. Ray then helped his wife load her luggage into the car, and Allison headed to Richmond, Virginia for a work trip. That evening at 6 or 6.30, Allison finished work and checked into her hotel. When she tried calling Ray... She got his voicemail. When she was unable to reach her husband, she decided to call their house guest, Claudia. Claudia confirmed that she had heard Ray accept a phone call around 6.30 p.m., exclaiming to whoever was on the other end of the line, Oh, shit! before rushing out of the house in a hurry. According to Brotman's book, Ray then came back into the house as if he had forgot something before rushing out again. Claudia knew Allison was concerned and offered to look around the house to see if Ray had returned. But her search came up empty. Claudia told Allison that Ray was nowhere to be found. The next morning, when he still had not returned home, Allison decided to end her business trip early and head back to Baltimore. She alerted Ray's family to his absence, but no one had heard from him. I mean, this is your worst nightmare. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know something's wrong. You just Mm -hmm. have that sinking feeling. And then you have a three-hour car ride, and you just mm-hmm. can't get there fast enough. That is, That's what she said. She was just calling people the whole car yeah. ride back, because it's like, you have to be doing something. Calling That's him, so getting nothing. And every time it goes to voicemail, your anxiety just spe- spikes even more. Well, and she was saying, too, for a while, it was ring, 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 voicemail. And then eventually, it just started going straight to voicemail. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, well, now the phone's dead. Yeah, yeah. God, it's heartbreaking. It is. 
Friends and family began to worry. Ray's brother even flew up from Florida to help look for him because his disappearance was so unusual. After a three-hour drive, Allison finally arrived home. Disappointingly, Ray was not there. Instead, she found a bag of chips and an open can of soda, as well as Ray's Invisaligns, on the kitchen counter. Several lights around the house had also been left on, something Allison says was out of the ordinary. So clearly he left in a rush. Yes, and and he was engrossed in something because they said he usually ate pretty well, like he didn't eat a bunch of junk. And so the fact that he kind of ran into the kitchen and was eating chips and soda just, you know, versus making an actual lunch or something Mm -hmm. that whatever he was working on, he was really engrossed in. And then that call was just like out the door. Yeah. Claudia, who it according to the Unsolved Mysteries episode was Allison's uh, colleague. But from what I've heard since is. Ray and Claudia actually met on a flight from Baltimore to L.A. when mm-hmm. Allison was still living in L.A. and Ray was going back and forth this year. And they hit it off and then he introduced her to Allison and then they became friends. Okay. So And perhaps they also worked together. I don't maybe, know. Yeah, maybe she got her a job or yeah, something. Yeah, something like that. But she was in the guest room and Ray was in their study, which was next to the guest room. And when she hears Ray take this call, she hears him say, oh, shit. And then, you know how you can, like, hear someone push a rolly chair back? Mm-hmm. She heard him push it back really fast and just run downstairs, run out, and then he then he came back in like he, like he left something. So it was a very um, quick call. She didn't really – she says she didn't hear him say anything else. She could hear maybe some mumbling, but the only definitive word she could hear was him say, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. The Rivera family began calling hospitals, alerting the media, and even Porter, who put up an initial reward of $500 for information about his missing friend. The family posted flyers around town and talked to local residents, desperately hoping that someone had seen Ray. But the trail was cold. Ray's cell phone was not pinging, his credit cards were unused, and the banks did not register that any funds had been withdrawn. Ray's car was also nowhere to be found. Six days after Ray had run out of the house, family members drove up and down local streets, searching for any sign of Ray or his black SUV. Allison had nearly exhausted herself when her parents took over the hunt. Her mom and dad went looking and happened upon a black Mitsubishi Montero in a paid parking lot near Ray's former place of employment. Authorities confirmed the car belonged to Ray and that it had been there since May 16th, a fact indicated by the parking ticket on the windshield. It's kind of rough that her parents had to... I mean, it's nice that everyone was participating, but that the cooperation from the authorities was such... It's not like it was out in the woods somewhere. It's like right by his office. It's also a real bummer when an adult goes missing and the police kind of just treat it as, well, he'll probably turn up or he... he, he (laughs) He's probably probably cheating. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times that's what it is. Or he just ran off or... It's like... You know your loved one better than anyone. Mm -hmm. And how heartbreaking and frustrating is it when you're like, he would not do this. This is so uncharacteristic of him. Mm -hmm. His brother Angel said, I knew from the second Allison called that something was wrong because that Mm -hmm. is just not Ray. He doesn't go an hour or two without checking in with someone from his family or Allison because he was just so close. So, you know, this is totally out of character. Something awful has happened and no one will help you it's good that i mean you're like like i said his her parents at least were helping or his brother flew up you know everybody was in on the hunt 
and his some of his coworkers and stuff. It's just it's very frustrating. I would be very pissed off that I was like, it was literally right here and it took you eight days to find this, really? Because if someone's missing that long, I mean, other evidence is getting eroded. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So. And also, they say after first 48. Yes. You know, so. The leads are gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or th- tapes get erased. Things get, you know, stuff starts going missing and you're like, well, maybe if we would have found the car like 24 hours after he'd been missing. Yeah. This wouldn't have happened. Sinisterhood will be right back after a word from these sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Charlotte's Web, the world's most trusted hemp extract. Visit charlottesweb.com today and use the code CREEPY for 15% off their entire selection of amazing products, excluding bulk products and bundles. You can choose from a selection of topical skincare products, gummies, and traditional oils, all made to support you day-to-day, moment-to-moment. My personal fave is the mint chocolate hemp oil, which helps support a sense of calm and manage your everyday stresses. Tommy and I both use it and enjoy it very much. Mm. We also just received the eczema therapy medicated ointment that is part of their new line of CBD medic products, a line of products that combine active pharmaceutical ingredients with hemp extract to help provide natural pain relief. I believe Mm. you just ordered this as well. Yep. It's in the mail. Waiting for it. The cream absorbs quickly and is great for treating problem areas like redness and flaky skin that is associated with eczema. Well, I'm excited because uh, mine's in the mail and all of their products are free of eight major allergens as a person who's allergic to everything. Right. It's not tested on animals, gluten-free, hey, and their topical products are formulated without synthetic fragrances, artificial colors, dyes, sulfates, or GMOs. Charlotte Swab even offers products to support your pets, like the Hemp Extract for Dogs that supports healthy hips and joints and helps support a sense of calm. I just got in the mail, along with the eczema cream, the CBD chews for senior dogs, which are designed to enhance brain function and support their central nervous system. That sounds awesome. Well, a CBD routine is a simple way to ease some of life's day-to-day stresses. So try the world's most trusted hemp extract by going to charlottesweb.com and entering code CREEPY for 15% off. While Ray's car was found not too far from the offices of Stansbury and Associates, that wasn't the only noteworthy building nearby. The classic multi-story Belvedere Hotel towered over the parking lot. As friends and family scoured the surrounding areas for clues, some of Ray's colleagues from Agora decided to climb on the roof of the parking garage beside the Belvedere to search for Ray from a higher vantage point. When the three leaned over the edge, they saw a small building with a white roof that sat between the parking structure and the massive Belvedere Hotel. There, on May 24, 2006, eight days after Ray had gone missing, they made an unusual discovery. On the small building's white roof, they spotted a pair of flip-flops, what appeared to be a wallet, a cell phone, a pair of glasses, and a bunch of keys. These items were located near a 40-inch hole, about as large around as a manhole cover. I mean, your stomach's got to just sink when you see that. Man, yeah. They said at first they thought it was just trash, which you would Mm -hmm. see on the top of a roof, you know, downtown like that. But then they noticed, oh, that's a big flip flop. Mm -hmm. And there's another flip flop. There's some glasses. And then it all just starts coming together. And then you see that that belongs to somebody. Yep. Yep. Unsure of what to make of this, Ray's coworkers looked above them to see from where these items might have fallen. According to Brotman's book, One of the men noticed an old banquet chair hanging off the edge of the roof of the Belvedere. Properly worried, the co-workers called the police, who quickly arrived to investigate the scene. 
The small building on which these worrisome items were located was referred to as the old racquetball club or the old church space. It had once housed the swimming pool of the Belvedere, but had been filled in with concrete years ago, despite many believing the pool was still in use. The rooms were now rented as office space to a local catering company and, up until a month prior to the discovery, a church. And Brotman said there was stuff going on that week that he was missing. So there were people in and around some rooms, but just not that room. And even the catering company, who I believe is called Truffles, they reported a smell mm-hmm. that they thought was a rat in the wall. Mm-hmm. And we'll discover that's not the case. When police arrived, they had to ask the building's manager, Gary Shivers, to open the door. He told Unsolved Mysteries. I opened the door up, and the first thing I did was I smelled the stench. The smell was a dead body. There, lying on the floor beneath the hole in the ceiling, wedged against the wall, was Ray Rivera's decomposing body. Ray's brother and wife were called at the police station to identify the body. The family was crushed when they confirmed that it was, in fact, their beloved Ray. It's kind of split emotionally because yeah. it's the answer, but also more questions and just the ultimate, ultimate heartbreak. I think about that a lot in missing person cases, especially ones that go on for years and years. I think there comes a point where you're like, I just want to, even a body would be an answer and give me mm-hmm. some closure. But eight days out, I think you're still holding hope that he's still alive. Mm-hmm. So to get that news, like you said, on one hand, okay, well, at least we can start planning the next step. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, that's it. He's it's gone. It's just heartbreaking, man. Yeah. I got you. I think when you find the car and the, the parking ticket is there indicating it's been there since he went missing, mm-hmm. that's got to be a stomach dropper moment where it just really takes the winds out of your sails. Well, true. And like you were saying, the brother said, as soon as I knew no one had heard from him, I knew it was bad. It's like, you know, when you find the parking ticket on the car, you're like, well, of course he's been gone. Like he wouldn't go this long. I'm sure they assumed this is not going to end well. Yeah. But when is it going to end and how is it going to end? You're just at a complete loss. Yeah. I don't think they expected it to be like this. No, I don't know. The medical examiner observed that Ray suffered from multiple fractured ribs, punctured lungs, several seven to nine inch lacerations, damage to his skull, and that his right leg was broken in two places, with bone protruding through the flesh. He had been lying on the floor of the empty conference room for over a week beneath the hole in the ceiling. Detective Bayer was at the crime scene and described how he believed Ray ended up down in the room. He came vertical through that thing like a projectile. The biggest question is where did he come from and how did he get through that hole? How Ray got through the hole in the roof was just one of the many questions authorities had. Next to the hole in the roof, Ray's Sprint Sanyo cell phone had been found fully intact. The screen was not cracked and the phone was fully functional. Ray's glasses had also been found undamaged. One of his flip-flops was scuffed, as if it had been dragged along the ground, and the other had the strap on the inner sole ripped out. The details of the scene didn't seem to add up. Detective Bayer told Unsolved Mysteries, To me, it looked staged. One thing that was not found with Ray's body, or even in his car, was a silver money clip that Allison had given Ray on their wedding day. It had ornate carvings and was engraved with his initials, RR. According to Ray's family, he never went anywhere without it. I think the phone and the glasses are particularly fascinating because... 
they were saying that uh, I believe the miniseries or the Unsolved Mysteries creator that although you can't make this a podcast, she said later Allison dropped his glasses in the bathroom from like standing height and they broke. Really? So they could not have made the smash. To me, those things, while at first blush, seem impossible. I think there are reasons how they could have not been cracked. And I also read that in the 9-11 Museum, there is an entire um, exhibit of people's items that were found that fell with them. Mm-hmm. That were completely intact, including cell phones. Yes. That were are completely functional. So I think if he had been wearing his glasses when he hit the roof, they wouldn't have had that far to maybe bounce off. Same with the cell phone. Mm-hmm. If they had fallen off of him midair and then hit, I think that's different. But I don't know. That's interesting that she kind of dropped the glasses. and But, you know, I've dropped my cell phone and from out of like uh, standing up on concrete and nothing happened. But then I've also like knocked it off just a few mm-hmm. a, a foot from the ground and it shattered. So sometimes it's just the way the it angle. hits. Yeah, the angle. But it is interesting for sure. While Ray's money clip was not found in his person, another small item of interest was. During an appearance on Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcast, Unsolved Mysteries creator Terry Dunmuir talked about a keepsake from his wife that Ray had in his pocket at the time of his death. Allison had given him a small little penny that had a heart cut out of it. She'd found it on one of her work trips and she brought it home to him and said, whenever you need me, you hold this penny and you know I'm close. According to Allison, Ray always kept the penny in a small bowl on a dresser in their bedroom. Was there a reason Ray had decided to take the penny with him the day he hurriedly left their house? I think so. Oh, man. I got tingles just then. He knew something. Mm -hmm. He knew something was up for sure. Mm -hmm. Investigators and journalists canvassed the hotel, but came up empty-handed. While detectives claimed to have spoken with residents of the Belvedere, Makita Brotman claims the police never questioned her or any other neighbors she spoke with. This is significant, as Brotman believes she heard the actual crash of Ray's death. Brotman's apartment was on the fifth floor of the Belvedere, with an east-facing window that overlooked the building with a hole in the roof. Around 10 p.m. on May 16, 2006, Brotman says she and her partner heard a noise that was so loud it rattled their windows. Not hearing any other sounds, they chalked it up to a car crash and didn't call the police. Brotman now believes the sound she heard was Ray's body crashing into the roof below her. Yeah, they lived on a pretty busy intersection, but mm-hmm. she said it's busy on the weekends, but during the weeknights, it's pretty quiet after office hours and when all the workers have gone home. So to hear something that loud that late at night on a you know weeknight, they're like, that's weird. And she went to go and look and, you know, didn't see any cars. And so she said, I was, you know, we were in bed reading and I just grabbed my journal and I just wrote like, heard a sound, mm-hmm. just not thinking and later on, when she had heard what happened, she went back to her journal and was like, oh, shit, yeah. that was the same night. Man, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Investigators continue to be baffled as to how Ray ended up on the roof. The stairwells leading up to the roof were behind locked doors. And once up the stairs, the doorway to the roof was also locked. Some speculated that he may have jumped to his death from a lower part of the roof. 
However, this would have been nearly impossible, as one cannot access those parts of the roof without entering into one of the private condominiums and crawling out a window. After checking cameras all around the Belvedere, there was no evidence that Ray had ever entered the building. Strangely, though, the camera on the roof itself was not working that night, as it had been disconnected. This is when we're going to start seeing a lot of convenient uh, coincidences. And wasn't, what were we just talking about where we were saying at some point it no longer becomes coincidences Mm -hmm. and it becomes deliberate, deliberate pattern. What were we just talking about with that? We talk about a lot of stuff. But it it was something we recorded. Brian Harrington's probably yelling. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. He texted me the other day and said, I was literally, I was listening to your mixed bag cooking dinner and I was screaming, James Vanderbeek. And then <laughs> five minutes later, you guys specifically said, we need Brian right now to answer these questions. <laughs> I was like, we need you on a permanent phone a friend where we can just yes. call and ask just you. Call he knows more about, he has like, he's one of those people that just has infinite movie knowledge. Yes. Like you could be like, uh, that 1996 movie with blah blah blah. Who who like he Gina could Davis? Just, he could lit. What'd you say? I said Gina Davis. Yeah, like, he just knows. Oh, he's probably like League of Their Own. He he just knows all this stuff. I'm so bad at. I just don't have a brain for that. Well, I mean, he and this now we've mentioned both members of uh of taboos, but they have a guessing <laughs> game. Like they're good. Guessers. That's true. That's true. Yes. yes, we're talking about for those of you who don't know, comedian Dallas comedian Brian Harrington. He's yes, very funny and very talented comedian and improviser. Very much so, dear friend of mine. Brotman says in her book that she personally witnessed the police officers investigating the crime scene and noticed how they tossed Ray's flip-flops and laughed with one another. She never saw them bag up evidence or block off the room where he was discovered. Twenty Baltimore Police Department cadets were paraded through the crime scene for a training exercise. The scene was not secured after they left either. Yeah, it seems like they were treating this like it was not anything to be investigated, yeah. sort of manhandling everything and disregarding that there may be fingerprints on a phone yes. or glasses or something. They're all just grabbing a hold of it and letting people walk through. And she said she was just like disgusted when she saw them laughing because she's like, she's a true crime expert. And then also just any like detectives or agents she's talked to were like a big deal is that a lot of times friends or family members are on the outskirts of a scene and you don't want that your loved ones like hey my flip-flops ripped that's so shitty yeah yeah i think they looked at this and just immediately chalked it up to suicide and Mm -hmm. decided well case closed there's not much to really discuss here and or were they told to treat it that way maybe and and uh because of that, a crime scene was tampered with and mm-hmm. evidence was lost and not good, Baltimore PD. Nope. Brotman and several employees of the Belvedere were also able to enter the room where Ray had been found, as it had not been sealed off with crime scene tape. She says in her book that the carpet had a large black stain, presumably where Ray had been lying. The surrounding carpet was covered in plaster and debris from the ceiling above and spotted with small insect larvae. Brotman also notes that looking up at the hole from the inside of the room, it appeared much larger than it did on the outside, similar to a bullet hole. She also says that the room smelled like a sweet floral scent of chemicals that had been used to clean the scene. 
And it wasn't just that the door was unlocked. It was propped open to air it out. So she goes in there and then two of the waitresses from the hotel bar are in there going, ew, gross. It smells like dead body. And she kind of says, well, I mean, it smells more like chemicals, but whatever. And she talks about then she also includes a lot of facts about what hotels normally do when they find or they have a death in the hotel and like how cleaning doesn't always happen from professional crews just because of the exorbitant cost that a lot of times they would just send their regular cleaning crew up there with bleach or whatever. But yeah, the fact that the door was just propped open, it was just propped open. And again, even if the family isn't there, and they usually could be, like Mm -hmm. the family stops by and they see that there are strangers just gawking at their loved one's crime scene, that is heartbreaking. Mm Mm-hmm. And even if you don't witness it, you're going to read about it. Yes. And just to know that that's how it was treated. this was being treated. When you've said from the beginning, something isn't right. You're not getting the help that you need and everything. You're just looking at this like, we're getting screwed every which way. Absolutely. Although there was not a lot of evidence, police in Baltimore determined that Ray had taken his own life by jumping 45 feet to his death. This was not something the Rivera family could accept. They were adamant that Ray was happy and had shown no signs of suicidal tendencies in the weeks leading up to his disappearance. His wife Allison told Unsolved Mysteries that she felt the police wouldn't listen to her as a grieving widow, but she also logically laid out why she believed that her husband wouldn't have killed himself. He's not a guy that would jump off a roof, especially where we were in our lives. He was so excited. He wanted a baby so bad. He just wanted a family so bad. In addition, Allison said both she and her husband were terrified of heights and that Ray would have never set foot on the roof of the 118-foot building. I mean, you just probably feel like you're being gaslit from every possible direction that you're like, somebody needs to do something and everyone's like, all right, lady, here's some tissues. Get over it. Yeah, you're treated like a hysterical woman. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of babies. Yes. Guess I'll take this time. It's a good time. (laughs) No, is there ever a good time? But I mean, uh, on a murder show, yeah, no. on a murder show. When are you going to announce your pregnancy? If not in the middle of talking about murder? Wait, you're pregnant? I am, Heather. I oh am. my god! Congratulations. Thank who's you, the dad? as someone who's known for quite a while. Thank That's you true. very much. That's true. Yes, yes. I uh, hopped back on social media yesterday or two days ago to announce it, and uh, thank you for taking. Very socially distanced pictures. <laughs> I know. One of was which, like, hey, uh, do you want me to be your photographer so there's no shadows next time? I was like, all right, rude. <laughs> okay, first of all, that shadow provided hilarity. So, so I appreciate good. it. Um, if you want to see the shadow I'm talking about, go ahead and go check out my Instagram. <laughs> because it, I didn't notice it at first. I was going through the pictures and I was like, oh, this is a cute one to post. And Tommy's like, we can't use that. I'm like, why? He's like. Because it straight up looks like I have a huge erection. And the shadow (laughs) on his stomach is perfectly placed and looks like a giant dick. There's no other way around it. I'm thinking it's Ella's arm. It's It's Ella. Yeah, Yeah, it was Ella. It's her arm. Yeah. But But I mean, you couldn't, if we had tried to create that, we couldn't have. No, no. You What you do is you post that and you're like, guess what? I'm pregnant. And everyone's like, yeah, I bet you are. <laughs> That's what people were like. Well, I mean, it played a part in it. So you might as well. Also, I'm like, I didn't think I needed to clarify that this is a shadow. Yeah. I mean, 
<laughs> well, I was uh, able to Photoshop it out of the actual official one. But um, we've had fun Photoshopping little faces and things onto hats. it, too. <laughs> little hats. It's your own little death worm. Yes. Uh, I'm going to get it, uh, a giant one blown up and hung over the mantle just so uh, <laughs> just so it can be preserved forever. But, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I'm pregnant, everybody. But so yeah, that's why uh, we talk about I'm talking about food even more than normally. I have no excuse. I just like snacks. You know but what? It's great. I'm like Kevin that. when Pam is pregnant and she's like, "Let's have another breakfast." And Kevin's like, "Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> like, let's do that." Yes, oh. I'm very into it. But yeah, I mean, if you're you now, then you can speak from a previous experience, but be current experience that you're trying to have a baby, or you're pregnant, or you're trying to get pregnant that puts you in a certain future looking mindset. Sure. Yes. You guys are looking to the future and. You know, what's going to happen? And pl- even before you were pregnant, you're planning of like, okay, well, if we get pregnant in the next few months, we'll have a baby in January or June or whatever. Yeah. It puts if, you in that forward looking. If if they were planning on having a baby, that's unusual behavior for someone that is thinking about taking their own life super mm-hmm. soon. Yeah. The Rivera family was devastated and unsatisfied with the police investigation. Allison decided to speak to the medical examiner to see if any more light could be shed on what really happened. She was relieved when the M.E. told her, I know what they're trying to do, and we are not closing this case. What was not consistent with the fall were the way his shins were broken. As such, the M.E. ruled Ray's death as undetermined. The Rivera family had already suspected that Ray had not died by suicide, but, rather, was a victim of foul play. Now, this latest information sealed the deal. Apparently, it was more as if his shins were broken either like by getting hit by a car or with a bat or something mm-hmm. like that versus the inversion of the like that if you're going down feet first and your feet hit the ground, then you would have an like an inverted kind of a break versus across the front break. Yes. Yeah. And we're so this is going to be broken up into probably three episodes yes. uh, because the amount of information out there is just uh, it's a lot. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about. Get more into the forensics of the hole, mm-hmm. the fall from the roof, and the um, logistics of what would have had to happen for his body to land where it was and everything. And there's some very interesting scientific stuff mm-hmm. that just makes you think there's no way he went through that, the roof, the way they, there's no way he could have just jumped from the roof, mm-hmm. even if he'd got a running start yep. and landed where he landed. Yeah. Feet first. Yes, I have. This all fits my theory, which I'm not going to tell you until I have. Three. I have. I have a theory as well. I also don't want to tell you until we get to it. Episode three will probably be when we when we get to that. But also, my theories have kind of changed along the way, and I kind of have a a hybrid of several theories. It's what I had to do. I had to make columns, and then on each, then across the rows are particular pieces of evidence and then the columns are particular theories and then i mark and make notes of like which ones match which theories and mm. one of them is coming out i'm gonna the, get a ch- i want a chart make a chart I'll send, I, well, I'm, I'm not gonna send you a picture of my chart because then i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to ruin your yes. thinking you know okay. i don't want to bias you yeah no i appreciate that it's like when you when you tell someone about a movie and then you see it through those lens i want to i want to um, have your I own wanna, lens want us both to have but what if we have the same theory? I mean, I'll, I mean, if you, my theory is very conspiracy oriented, so I'm like assuming we don't. Mine, um, I wouldn't say it's very, but oh, there's elements of. I'll just say this: I don't think 
I don't think he jumped from the roof with suicide in mind. Correct. Or of his, I don't think he did it of his own volition. That's possible also. I got, I got, I got, I'm still working out a couple things of how it may have happened. Gotta go add to my chart. <laughs> but who would want Ray dead and why? Ray's loved ones had more questions than ever before. But the bizarreness of this case was just the beginning. A strange cryptic note typed up by Ray and left taped to the back of his computer would soon be found by Ray's brother, Angel. Ray's one-time best friend and boss, Porter Stansberry, was about to stop cooperating with the police, placing a gag order on all his employees as well. And the looming question still remained. Who placed that mysterious phone call that sent Ray dashing from the house? Lots of questions. So many. I'll say, to be fair, Porter Stansberry's crisis management firm alleges uh, they disagree that they ever had a gag order on employees and that they're everybody else must be lying and they they're all making it up which is funny for a firm that uh kind of lies to people for a living (laughs) well according to the sec they've at least done it (laughs) once true and we'll again talk about that in the second episode but also we'll talk about this note which yes, is which I have. Oh man, I have some theories. I got on a lot note of theories, too. and it's it's very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Well, so what do we think so far? So far, I mean, it's a, it's such a heartbreaking mm-hmm. thing to watch Allison talk, relive all this now, go back through it, but then even thinking about back then because she's had time, right? Not that that ever heals everything, but at least makes it a little bit less raw. But at the time, you're six months married. Mm-hmm. And this person that's your soulmate, that it's not like they like met, you know, and six months later got married. I mean, they've been together like five years, mm-hmm. six years. So you know someone very well. And this happens. And whatever theory happened, you know, whatever answer is out there, none of it makes sense. Yeah, You know, you no. want an answer, but nothing, no answer is going to bring him back a or b no answer is gonna satisfy that of why and when there is no answer to this and unless someone comes forward i don't think there will ever be a definitive answer Mm -hmm. you're just left i mean i'm sure even now it's been what uh eight years nine years since this Mm -hmm. happened but in the beginning especially do you ever stop thinking about what happened that day? What I could have done differently? What if I hadn't gone on that work trip? Or or just how, I mean, the mind is a scary place when it's left to just wander. Mm-hmm. And when you have no answers and you just have all these little breadcrumbs you're trying to piece together, that is just a mindfuck of epic proportion. I mean, it'll just keep you up at night, every yeah. night. Absolutely, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Well, we got well, one more. Yeah, we got a lot more coming at you. Um, we've had several requests for us to do this. So we're, um, we hope you guys enjoy it. Let us know, um, theories, you, your theories and stuff. We'll be getting to theories probably in the third episode, but we'll, we'd still love to hear yours now. And maybe, um, we'll even get some new information that somebody shares with us that we can incorporate in because literally there's, the amount of things you can read about this are infinite. <laughs> oh, it just goes deep and deeper and deeper. Deeper I and mean, deeper. 
And also, if you know anything, go to unsolved.com and send your yes. tipping because they really do follow up with like law enforcement and stuff. And I think, as Robert Stack said, someone out there knows like that for every mystery, someone out there knows the truth and it could be you. And think about this, the satisfaction that this woman and his mm-hmm. whole family actually will have. Yep. Yeah. Terry Dunn, I think it's Muir, mm-hmm. her last name spelled where it's kind of hard to know. Um, she said they, that they personally look into every single tip that's come through. They've had tips that have panned out on some of the other episodes as well. But she says that she believes the key to this is if the person who placed that phone call to him comes forward. Mm-hmm. Or the person who overheard someone place the phone call yes. to him. You yeah. Know. The phone call is going to be key. Key, in the, key in this for sure. Well, we don't have any live improv shows right now because of everything that's going on, but we do have a fun thing that we get to plug that we're super excited about that's coming up. We're going to do a super fun thing on August 15th at 6 p.m. Our friends at Soups Cash are hosting a Jackbox game night on their Twitch stream, and we are super pumped to be a part of it. We're going to play some games. Yes, Soups Cash is a Twitch stream hosted by comedians and friends Tommy Brown, Jude Sutton, and Tyler Simpson every Thursday and Sunday at 8.15 p.m. Central Standard Time, where they play a video game of their choice while chatting about whatever strikes their fancy. Their motto is casual gamers, professional level friends. It's basically a comedy podcast you can see that also involves video games. And as someone who has been watching this since they started about a month or so ago, I can promise you it is very funny. They're all, I mean, I'm married to one of the guys. They're all three very funny individuals. Jude, for those that own our Donna Laser and the Meat Warlocks t-shirt, is the designer of that very talented artist. He also designed all of our little stickers that That's we should true. put on the website. Yes, yeah. yes. And Jude, Tyler, and Tommy are three of my favorite comedians. They're so funny. They're so In funny. all the ways that I've ever seen. I mean, performing with Tommy is a dream come true, but I've seen Jude and Tyler both on stage, and they just get me, man. Yeah. They just wreck me. Tyler's a fantastic stand-up, and... Um, Back in the day, was on an earlier episode of Sinisterhood. It's a archive vault, an archived, vault an archived one. But uh, yeah, they're super fun, and this is going to be super fun. We'll be playing along with other friends and comedians in an effort to raise money for the Loveland Foundation, a foundation which helps provide therapy to Black women and girls. And for every new follower to their channel, Soup's Cash will donate a dollar up to six hundred sixty-six dollars. How? What a fun number that <laughs> is! <laughs> To watch us have a lot of fun and be a part of a great cause, go to Soup's Cash, that's S-U-P-E-S-C-A-S, on Twitch, and hit that follow button. And this is going to be August 15th at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can go to Sinisterhood.com slash links, and we'll also have a link there, as well as post it on our social media. Super excited. It's going to be fun. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost, so if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and Patreon-exclusive video and audio content like our weekly mix bags where we share three of our favorite things of the week. For more details on specific membership tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Patreon in the top right corner to join today. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. 
So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. And if you want to get some cool swag like a Donna Laser and the Meat Warlocks t-shirt, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop in the top right corner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where is that phallic-shaped shadow? <laughs> it's on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace, and I'm also on Twitter at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I'm on Instagram at Heather versus the World and on Twitter at MCK versus the World. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Samantha D. Brenda Guzman. Melanie Grace. Elizabeth. Heather Brayboy. Nicole Michelle. Anna Brown. Peter Alexander Shipman. Jennifer Ferguson. Jennifer Coe. Rich Ferguson. Katie Doherty. Hallie. Feli A. Monica. Mize Bastille. Matia. Cicely Whedon. Anastasia. Don Bottoms. Mandy Edwards. Kimber. Pretty scary. Tori S. Melissa Cash. Karina Khalid. Shay. Carter Stanovich. Emily Jean Endorf. And Rebecca Miller. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show, especially during these trying times. We couldn't do this without you. We sincerely appreciate it. We love you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Sinister. <laughs>